This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'll briefly talk about some additional definitions, give you a little bit more background for our talk later today, review the different cortical regions, and this is a really a broad overview of the cortex, which does so much that we can't fit into 15 minutes, and then briefly talk about some diseases that seem to target the cortex. Again, just to review, here are the directions and the names for different or how to orient the parts of the brain. So rostral is towards the head, whereas the back is caudal. Then we have anterior and posterior or ventral and dorsal. And again, these are the different planes we refer to. You'll see images that are in the horizontal or axial plane or going through the front like a crown, the coronal plane, or along the side in the sagittal plane. I want to revisit our friend, the neuron, which is the basic component of the nervous system. There's a nucleus. Here's a cell body. These are dendrites, which receive information from other neurons. And then uh, depending on what information is received, there may be an electrical signal that's generated at the axon hillock that is propagated down the axon. We discussed how glial cells, Schwann cells, and myelin help propagate this response. And then uh, the response is transmitted to the presynaptic terminals or boutons, which then uh, meet another neuron. And this is a close-up view of the synapse. When a presynaptic terminal is sufficiently stimulated, what happens are these tiny vesicles that are packed with uh, molecules of neurotransmitter. They merge with the membrane and the neurotransmitter is dumped out onto this synaptic cleft where it then diffuses and binds to different channels that are on the postsynaptic neuron. These channels can be ion channels, meaning that they there are pores, there are holes in the membrane that open up and allow either positive or negative ions to come in, or they can be uh, different ch channels that lead to that signal other proteins that are within the cell. And these proteins can activate cascades of different proteins, which then lead to maybe more protein production or uh, changes in how the protein makeup of the neuron is, um, it can remodel the synapse. So a lot of different things that the neurotransmitters can do. I won't go in too much, uh, but neurotransmitters can in general be excitatory or inhibitory. So excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate can um, open ion channels that allow positive ions to come in that contributes to an electrical signal that can be generated down the axon versus a neurotransmitter like GABA, which um, opens chloride channels and that sort of inhibits electrical transmission down the axon. Other neurotransmitters you may have heard about include 
dopamine, <clears throat> norepinephrine, acetylcholine, serotonin, all those are examples of neurotransmitters that are packed into these vesicles and can be released into the cleft to activate um, and bind to proteins on the postsynaptic neuron. And I wanted to show, put this slide up because it demonstrates a lot of the different regions of the cortex. This is the main cortex, and this is really what you think about when you think about the brain. But there is an organization to the cortex. There's uh, generally, uh, in the neocortex, generally six layers. And in different parts of the brain, the layers are different sizes, and different layers contain a different mixture of neurons and also a different um, incoming either dendrites or axons coming from different neurons. And they form connections. So for example, layers two and three tend to receive connections from different cortical areas, whereas some of these lower areas, they're heading towards the thalamus or to the brainstem which we previously talked about, or they're receiving information from those regions. So there is an organization to all the madness. The major regions of the cortex include the frontal lobe, which is in blue, parietal lobe here, the occipital lobe is in the back, and then the temporal lobe is in green on the side and inferior. The frontal lobe uh, is a very complex lobe. I won't get into it too much, but one of the major functions of the frontal lobe is the motor cortex. So this is the primary motor cortex, and this is what we call a cortical homunculus. This really shows us how control of different parts of the body uh, is where the control is located. So for example, down here in this groove are the motor neurons that control movements of the leg. And here is a region that controls movements of the arm and hand. So for example, this um, neuron here starts in the motor cortex. It sends its axon down to the brainstem, the medulla where it crosses over into the other side. Again, the left side of the brain controls the right side of the body. Then it goes through the lateral cortical spinal tract in the spinal cord, and then synapses with a secondary or lower motor neuron in the spinal cord that then exits the spinal cord and goes to the muscle to cause it to contract. Just behind the motor cortex, we have the sensory cortex. And this is in the parietal lobe. So this is the separation between the frontal and the parietal lobe. You can see that the face, for example, gets a large representation in the cortex, as you might expect, because it's so important for us to be able to feel the face, uh, the lips. It almost gets the same amount of cortex as the trunk, uh, more even. And that is uh, where it, the first order, where the sensory neurons come in, they come up the spinal cord through the brainstem, through the thalamus, and then up to this uh, sensory area. 
The cortex, um, as I said, is important for a lot of things. So anything that we think of as higher order function, so not only motor planning of action and receiving um, understanding sensation, but also speech and language, imagination, calculations, all of that is done in the cortex. Speech and language, we think, although our understanding of this is really evolving, is uh, mostly involves the frontal lobe and the temporal lobes as well. So um, here is Broca's area, which is in the frontal lobe, and that classically we think of as controlling uh, the motor speech area. So uh, if you know, this area is impaired, you might have someone who might understand what you're saying, but really can't um, talk, uh, you know, has broken speech and um, is not able to communicate. Whereas um, Wernicke's area is in the temporal lobe and is uh, thought to be important for understanding speech. So even though someone uh, someone with a lesion in this region, they might seem like they're saying um, or that they, they don't really understand uh, what's being said to them. And then um, you, you can imagine there's um, can also be disruptions of the communication between these two areas, and that also causes uh, different problems with speech and language. The occipital lobe in the back is the main region that processes vision. The information from our optic nerves heads back here towards the brainstem and then the thalamus, and then it goes all the way to the very back. Uh, this is uh, where the primary visual cortex, it kind of sees movements and shapes, very basic forms, and then it kind of passes it along anteriorly towards the anterior portion of the occipital lobe, where there's um, more understanding and more sophistication as we figure out, you know, motion, where something's moving, where it's in its space, and then, you know, what the form and the color is to actually form the pictures that we see. The blood supply to the cortex is very important, and it really is a collection of three major or six, three on each side, major arteries, the anterior cerebral artery, the posterior cerebral artery here, and then the middle cerebral artery, which comes out through this fissure and innervates this part of the brain. They form a circle at the base of the brain called the circle of Willis. And then uh, you can see here, for example, the anterior artery really supplies the blood to this part of the brain, and then kind of in the middle, remember the homunculus where um, it dips down in the middle part, so the legs uh, controls a blood supply to the motor cortex and the sensory cortex that supplies the legs. The middle cerebral artery is really important for, for example, the speech areas. And then the posterior cerebral artery mostly goes towards the back and supplies the occipital lobe and also part of the temporal lobe here. When there's a disruption in the blood supply, then that can 
cause problems. For example, for this, this is a 63-year-old. I guess she was in Paris. She has a history of diabetes and high cholesterol, heart disease, who actually went to her eye doctor because she said suddenly she couldn't see in her right eye. And when the doctor tested her, it wasn't actually she could see in the right eye, but she could not see the right side of her vision in both eyes. And um, so this is what she could see. This is what she could see in her left eye. And this is what she could see out of her right eye. And based on this pattern, we can tell that when we looked at her imaging, she actually had a stroke in the uh, occipital cortex. And if you remember, that's the posterior cerebral artery that controls vision. So that makes sense why. Um, so this is actually the left part of her brain. So she had a left posterior cerebral artery stroke. And that's why she couldn't see uh, the right part of her vision. Other diseases that affect the cortex include brain tumors. This is a picture of uh, eight different people with glioblastoma, which is a very um, aggressive primary brain tumor. Depending on where the tumor is located, that can cause different neurologic problems. And you know, unlike stroke, sometimes even these big lesions can the findings that they cause can be more subtle because the tumor has grown slowly over time and pushed the brain tissue away. So it doesn't always um, cause as dramatic of a picture as uh, maybe a stroke would. Finally, I won't talk about this too much because we'll hear more about it, but the um, cortex is also very much affected in neurodegenerative disease. And this is a schematic of some of the areas in the cortex where we see disease pathology, either cell death or shrinkage of neurons or plaques or tangles, uh, which are abnormal aggregates either within the neurons or uh, in between neurons. And uh, we think that these are either markers or part of the pathology of neurodegenerative diseases. These are my references again. And with that, I'm very thrilled to introduce Dr. Gil Rabinovich. He's the Edward Fine and Pearl Landreth Endowed Professor in Memory and Aging. He went to Stanford University and then completed his medical degree at Northwestern. He did intern internship in medicine at Stanford, and then he did his neurology residency here at UCSF. Uh, then I've received a fellowship at the Memory and Aging Center, and you know he's been really at the forefront of uh, research on novel diagnostic testing and trying to detect Alzheimer's disease as early and as accurately as possible. And I think he's been um, thinking about the big picture of, you know, really what modes of testing are really important to develop a precision model of diagnosing neurodegenerative disease in patients. So I'm really excited that he agreed to speak with us today and looking forward to his talk. I am going to give you a whirlwind tour of Alzheimer's disease in 45 minutes or less. 
I'll begin with what I call Alzheimer's 101. So basic definitions of the disease, a little description about the epidemiology, genetics, and biology of Alzheimer's. Then I'll spend some time discussing how we diagnose Alzheimer's disease. I'll summarize what our current approaches are, and I'll tell you a lot about new so-called biomarkers or new tests that involve spinal fluid, advanced brain imaging scans, and increasingly blood tests that can detect key elements of Alzheimer's disease in living people. And then in the last part of my talk, I'll talk about treating Alzheimer's disease, give you a summary of established treatments, tell you uh, a little bit of a soap opera about a new uh, controversial drug that was just approved by the FDA last year to treat Alzheimer's disease, the first new drug approved in over 20 years, but this came with a lot of controversy. So I'll tell you that spicy story and really conclude with clinical trials and where I think things are headed in terms of future approaches to treating this disease. So the history of Alzheimer's disease really dates back to an encounter between uh, this woman, Augusta Dieter, uh, who is a 51-year-old homemaker who was brought into an asylum in Frankfurt by her husband because she was exhibiting really severe memory loss confusion, paranoia, behavioral changes. And she was evaluated by Alice Alzheimer, a German psychiatrist and neuropathologist. And Alzheimer was really captivated by Augusta D and what he called her disease of forgetting. He had never seen this in someone so young. And when she passed away in 1906, Alzheimer performed her brain autopsy. And what you see here is a preservation of one of the key elements of brain pathology in Alzheimer's disease, neurofibrillary tangles, which I'll describe later, drawn by Alzheimer himself around the turn of the century. This is a more modern slide showing what a pathologist would see under the microscope if he or she were examining a brain uh, that had been affected by Alzheimer's disease. And there are really two key pathologic lesions that define the disease. These sort of flowery appearing structures occur between brain cells, between neurons, and they are called amyloid plaques. They're composed of a protein fragment called amyloid beta, and different uh, amyloid beta proteins stick together and form these structures called plaques, which are toxic to the brain. And then within the brain cells themselves, these flame-shaped appearing structures are called neurofibrillary tangles. These are literally tangles of a protein called tau that form within the neurons and cause dysfunction of neurons and eventually cell death. And so Alzheimer's disease is defined really by the presence of these two lesions, the plaques and the tangles. Now it's hard to imagine now, but actually for most of the 20th century, Alzheimer's disease of forgetting was a forgotten disease. People thought of Alzheimer's as a rare cause of dementia in younger people and most dementia or that occurred in older age was attributed either to senility, just plain aging, or to vascular causes, so-called hardening of the arteries. And it wasn't really until the 1970s and even early 80s that people discovered that actually the majority of older adults who develop dementia later in life have these same pathology changes, the plaques and the tangles that Alzheimer had des described in uh, 1906. But of course, now we know that not only is Alzheimer's disease not rare, it is incredibly common and has us really on the verge of a public health crisis. So it's estimated that there are over 6 million Americans living with Alzheimer's disease currently. 
This chart comes from the Alzheimer's Association, and it shows the expected increase in the number of people living with Alzheimer's disease at different ages. And so in light blue, you see people ages 65 to 74, orange ages 75 to 84, and finally in purple, age 85 plus. So you can see us right around 6 million currently in 2022, but as the population ages, that number is expected to grow dramatically and, and get uh, closer to 14 million by 2050. And you can see that the majority of that increase in the prevalence of the disease or the number of people living with the disease is driven by an aging population, in particular, people living over age 85. So just to put this in perspective, if uh, someone is currently age 65, it's estimated that Alzheimer's will affect about one in five females and one in nine males currently at age 65. And there is a higher risk for Alzheimer's disease in Blacks and Latinx individuals compared to non-Latinx whites. Alzheimer's is thought to be the sixth leading cause of death in the United States. This is almost certainly an underestimate because many people die of pneumonia or some other cause and Alzheimer's doesn't appear on the death certificate, but was likely a major contributing factor to their death. And public health costs are through the roof. So it's estimated that in the U.S. about over $300 billion were spent on Alzheimer's related uh, expenditures in 2020. About two-thirds of that is directly billed to Medicare. And so this is really a public health crisis, and it is critically important that we do something to change the trajectory. So what are some risk factors for developing Alzheimer's disease? Well, the number one risk factor, as I showed you, is getting older. Female sex seems to be a risk factor. So for reasons that we don't entirely understand, females are at higher risk than males, even accounting for the fact that females live longer than males on average. Family history is a risk factor. So if someone has a first-degree relative that was affected by Alzheimer's, their risk of developing the disease during their life is about three times higher than someone who doesn't have a family history. A previous history of head trauma, uh, anywhere from repetitive head traumas, small, mild traumas, to moderate to severe traumas, seem to be a risk factor. There's a lot of interest in this now in uh, the military and in professional sports. Depression and stress are risk factors. That's not anything that any of us have to worry about, I'm sure, in 2022. Sleep disorders seem to be a risk factor, and then vascular risk factors. So anything that's bad for the heart is bad for the brain. High blood pressure, diabetes, cholesterol, tobacco use, obesity, heart disease, all of these are risk factors for developing Alzheimer's. What are some things that might decrease the risk? Well, some good news here, education seems to be decreasing the risk. So by enrolling in our mini medical school, perhaps you are decreasing your risk of developing the disease and you are engaging in cognitive activity. And it seems to be the case that individuals who uh, have more cognitive, social and physical activity throughout their lifespan, beginning in middle age or even earlier, seem to have a lower risk of developing Alzheimer's during their life. More good news, a little alcohol might actually be protective, so not recommending anyone start drinking, but if you had a Guinness on St. Patrick's Day, uh, one Guinness, that might not be a bad thing. And then finally, a heart-healthy diet. Uh, so the Mediterranean diet is currently the one that we recommend, very rich in fruit and vegetables, healthy nuts, uh, olive oil instead of butter, less unprocessed, uh, sorry, fully processed carbohydrates. 
Now, genetics plays a significant role, as I told you, given the increased risk of having a family history. About 1% of all cases of Alzheimer's disease are purely familial in that they're caused by a single gene mutation and an individual who has that mutation will develop the disease at a young age with almost 100% certainty. And when I say young, I mean people who might develop symptoms in their 50s, 40s, sometimes even earlier than that. And the most common gene mutation associated with this familial form of Alzheimer's disease involves mutations in a gene called presenilin 1, which is on chromosome 14. There are two other genes, a gene called the amyloid precursor protein, or APP, on chromosome 21, and a gene called presenilin 2, which is on chromosome 1. And I'll show you in a couple of slides what these gene products do and why they might lead to the disease uh, in individuals who are affected by mutations. Now, the major risk factor for developing so-called sporadic Alzheimer's disease, which means that uh, individuals develop it without a very strong family history, is a gene called apolipoprotein E, or APOE. APOE is a gene that is involved with lipid or cholesterol metabolism and transport. It's located on chromosome 9. We each get, have two copies, one from our mother, one from our father. And there are three different types of APOE or three different genotypes in the population. If you carry an APOE2 gene, that might actually protect you against developing Alzheimer's. E3 is the most common gene in the population. And E4 is a gene that increases the risk. About one in five of us have a, as at least one copy of APOE4. And if you have one copy of E4, that increases your risk about three times compared to someone who doesn't have any E4 copies. If people have inherited two copies of APOE4, that increases the risk of developing the disease about 10 to 15 times over the lifetime. So not for certain that you'll develop the disease, but really very high risk. The other thing that APOE does is that it decreases the age of onset by about 10 years per each E4 allele or copy. And so if an individual uh, otherwise was destined to develop symptoms of Alzheimer's disease at age 80, but they also happen to have two copies of APOE4, then they might develop symptoms as early as age 60. So this is probably the most complicated slide that I'll show you tonight. Uh, this is a little bit of molecular biology telling us where the amyloid that forms the plaques comes from. So this cartoon shows um, a protein called the amyloid precursor protein, or APP. This is a gene that's expressed in neurons across the cell membrane. And its normal function in the brain is actually not well understood. It may have something to do with tuning the connections in the brain slightly up or down. But what we do understand is that APP has two potential fates. It's cleaved by proteins, and if it's cleaved by a protein called alpha-secretase, and then again by another protein called beta-secretase, then the, the brain actually develops a waste product that can be cleared very efficiently. However, if cleavage occurs with beta-secretase, and then again with a different protein called gamma-secretase, that causes a protein fragment that is 40 or 42 amino acids long. Amino acids are the building blocks of proteins. And this is called the A-beta peptide. 
And particularly the 42 amino acid version of this is a sticky protein. So one A-beta sticks to another, they form aggregates and solution called oligomers that are probably the most neurotoxic forms of amyloid beta. And then eventually they form these toxic waste dumps, the plaques that can be seen under the microscope. Now you'll notice that one of the, the part of this gamma secretase protein that creates the bad A-beta fragment is composed of a protein called presenilin. Remember I told you that gene mutations that cause familial forms of Alzheimer's disease involve mutations either in this presenilin protein or in APP. And so you can immediately imagine how mutations that increase the proclivity of this, of forming this A-beta fragment might lead to an overproduction and the development of plaques and symptoms of Alzheimer's disease at a young age. And in fact, that is precisely what happens. Now, the other critical point of, of, of the disease are the tangles. And the tangles are formed by a protein called tau. And we understand more about the function of tau than we do amyloid beta. Tau uh, binds to microtubules in neurons. So here's a happy, happy healthy neuron. Dr. Wong showed you earlier the different parts of the neuron. So these are the dendrites that are receiving connections from other neurons. Here's the cell body and nucleus. And here's the long axon where this neuron is sending now signals to other neurons. And the axon is, uh, the skeleton of the axon is stabilized by these structures called microtubules. These are the skeleton of the axon. They also are the highways of the axon. They allow transport of different biological materials from the cell body and nucleus all the way down into the axon. And one function of the tau protein is that it binds and stabilizes this skeleton, these microtubules. And what happens in Alzheimer's disease is that the tau protein undergoes changes called phosphorylation, which lead it to disassemble from the microtubules. The microtubules then become unstable and don't perform their normal function of stabilizing the cell and providing so-called axonal transport. Meanwhile, the tau, like the amyloid fragment, starts to aggregate and eventually forms these tangles in the cells. And so again, the plaques and tangles, this is where they come from. So this slide really is just meant to show us that life is complicated and Alzheimer's biology is complicated as well. Here is a neuron secreting little amyloid beta fragments that are forming these small collections called oligomers. They're causing dysfunction of this uh, neuron here. They're causing an inflammatory response. So they're actually activating the immune system in the brain. And then the angry immune system is secreting cell signals called cytokines, which are further stunning the neurons. Here are tangles forming in a cell. Here's the plaque also leading to inflammation or immune activation. So there is a lot going on in the disease. And as we think about therapies, you might imagine that treating any one element of this complex biology might not be enough. That at the end of the day, we might need treatments that combine different parts of this biology and target them in order to really get an effective therapy for the disease. So I'm gonna shift gears a little bit now and talk about how we approach the disease clinically. And really I'll talk about, I'll begin by talking about the continuum between normal aging and dementia. A very frequent question is, is memory loss appropriate for age or is there something else going on that we should be concerned about? So 
The first question is, does memory actually change with aging? And the answer is, there are sadly some elements of cognition that do decline with age. Things like processing speed, the ability to come up with specific names of things, that tip of the tongue where you can't quite think of the name of the actress or the word that you want to come up with right at that moment. Executive functions, these are uh, cognitive functions that are higher order, the ability to make complicated decisions, to process information quickly. Those elements do decline to some degree with age, as does memory. Now, happily, there are also things that improve with age, like our overall vocabulary, our general knowledge, and our wisdom. And I think that more than makes up for some of these more minor changes that we see in cognition. But some people are not aging normally. And there is a transition state called mild cognitive impairment, or MCI. And what that means is that there is a decline in memory or other cognitive functions that is more than we would expect for age, but that it's not yet significant enough to interfere with day-to-day functions. So someone might be experiencing memory loss, but they're able to compensate for it by keeping a closer look on their calendar, by uh, making to-do lists or putting up post-it notes. People are still able to get through daily life without needing any help. Mild cognitive impairment or MCI can be due to multiple causes. So in some people, it might represent the early stages of Alzheimer's disease. It might be due to plaques and tangles forming in their brain. But of course, there are many other potential causes. And then finally, we have dementia. And the definition of dementia is a decline in memory or other cognitive functions that is beyond what can be expected for age. So the the difference about dementia is that the decline in memory or cognition does interfere with day-to-day functions. So people do need help now doing their finances, monitoring their medications, doing some daily tasks. And that really is what differentiates dementia from mild cognitive impairments. And again, dementia can be due to multiple causes. Alzheimer's is the most common, but there are others. And so let me uh, demonstrate our clinical approach by telling you about a patient that I took care of here in the San Francisco VA. He was a 70-year-old right-handed veteran who had diabetes and high cholesterol, and he came into the office and just said, Doc, my memory's terrible. His wife came with him, and she reported that over the last three to four years, he was more forgetful. He was forgetting conversations they had. For example, the night before, they had talked about their memory clinic appointment, He woke up in the morning, no recollection that he had an appointment, no recollection that they had talked about it. He was repeating the same questions or telling the same stories over and over again. Now, his memory for remote events was actually relatively spared. He remembered very well in great detail things that had happened 10, 20 years ago, and in fact, spent more time than ever reminiscing about such things. He was at baseline a very gregarious, outgoing person, but now he tended to be a little more quiet in social settings, more withdrawn. The month before, he had been driving um, home uh, from a medical appointment in San Francisco. He lived way up by Ukiah, up north in the state, and he got lost, even though this is a route that he had traveled many, many times before, and he wasn't able to find his way home and ended up needing to stop and call his wife for help. He also was no longer able to manage his finances independently. His wife needed to keep an eye on his insulin and other medications to make sure he was taking them correctly. So he had met the threshold for dementia and that he was no longer fully independent with function. So one thing we do is we test people 
by, uh, we torture them really by giving them different cognitive tests, including memory tests. So I thought I'd give you a flavor for what that looks like. And one of the tests that we do is we ask them to memorize a list of words and we repeat the list four times. Each time after they hear the list, they're asked to recall all the words they can remember off the list. And so this sergeant has now heard the list four times and these are the words that he recollects. Let's start. Peaches, lemons, cherries, belt, hat, Okay, so he ended up remembering six of the nine words. That's not great. It's also not terrible. You can see that he hacked the test. So I'll give you a little hack in case you ever have to take one of these memory tests. You might have noticed this already, but these words, even though they're presented in no clear order, actually cluster into three main categories. And he figured that out and he uh, memorize the words by using, taking advantage of those categories, which makes it easier, yet he still was only able to remember six of the words. Now, 10 minutes later, we ask him to again list all the words that he can remember and notice not only which words he gets right, but also what kind of mistakes he makes. A few minutes ago, I read a list of words to you several times. Tell me all the words you can remember on that list. Uh, ranch. Um, grapes, orange, cherries, tomatoes, scissors, Okay, so a couple of points here. One is he only now remembers two out of the six words that he learned. So he's showing what we call rapid forgetting, which is very characteristic of Alzheimer's disease. Even 10 minutes later, four out of six words are gone. Now you'll notice he still remembers the categories and he makes mistakes. So he's naming other fruit or other tools that weren't on the list. And that kind of error having kind of the gestalt of what the memory was supposed to be about, but not quite the right detail is also very characteristic of Alzheimer's. And so we do a whole session of cognitive tests. We found that he had moderate to severe impairment in memory. He had mild impairment in other cognitive domains that Dr. Wong mentioned like language, visuospatial function and executive functioning. We do some basic labs just to make sure there are no other medical conditions that might be contributing. So we look at the electrolytes, liver and kidney function, cell counts, vitamin B12 level, thyroid function, all of those were normal. And then we perform a brain scan, usually a CT or an MRI scan. In this case, we got an MRI. And the most notable feature here is atrophy or loss of tissue 
in this brain structure called the hippocampus. So the hippocampus isn't quite part of the cortex, but it's close to the cortex. And this is a structure that is very, very important for retaining and making new memories. And in all, normally you would see a nice plump seahorse. Hippocampus is actually the Greek word for seahorse. But here all you see is a thin sliver of tissue. So there's been a lot of atrophy or tissue loss of the hippocampus. And that is a characteristic feature in Alzheimer's disease. So this is the typical way that we approach diagnosis. If someone has suggestive symptoms like memory loss and we rule out all other causes, we say they probably have Alzheimer's disease, but we can't be sure. And this really has significant limitations. The first limitation is that the same clinical symptoms, namely memory loss, can be due to multiple causes medication side effects, other medical conditions, rare infections, other brain conditions. And conversely, Alzheimer's disease can present with non-memory symptoms. So while most people present with memory loss, some people might actually early on have language problems or visual problems or trouble with judgment and problem solving or even personality and behavior. And so there isn't a perfect match between the symptoms and the disease. And as a result, the clinical diagnosis is only about 70 to 80% accurate compared to brain autopsy. And that is in the hands of experts. Of course, at UCSF, we do much better, well over 95%. I'm just kidding. Like everyone else, we would really be able to take advantage of some more objective tools to determine whether plaques and tangles are present. And this brings us to the story of biomarkers or biological markers. Uh, the definition of a biomarker is really any objective and reproducible measurement related to a biological process. So something as simple as height or weight or blood pressure or blood cholesterol, these are all biomarkers. And for many years in Alzheimer's disease, there's been a real push to develop biomarkers that can help us detect the plaques and the tangles, not after someone has passed away, but during life. And there have been some real breakthroughs beginning in the late 1990s with the development of spinal fluid tests that could detect plaques and tangles, followed by imaging tests that could detect first amyloid plaques in the mid 2000s and later tau tangles in 20, the 2010s. And then finally, just in recent years, really exciting news blood tests that can reliably detect the amyloid and tau protein in blood and will help us to diagnose the disease early and uh, accurately. So the spinal fluid signature of Alzheimer's disease, when people have black plaques in their brain, there is actually a decrease in the concentration of the amyloid beta 42 fragment in their spinal fluid or the ratio of 42 to 40 fragments. There is also an increase in the concentration in the spinal fluid of the tau protein, and in particular, of what we call phosphorylated tau. Tau phosphorylation, basically adding a phosphate moiety to the molecule, is one of the changes that leads to the development of tangles. And so these can now be measured with very high accuracy, and a spinal tap with measurement of these proteins can help us confirm the presence of Alzheimer's disease. A really exciting development occurred in the mid to early to mid 2000s with the development of imaging technologies that allowed us to visualize amyloid plaques in living people. And this is the first molecule that was developed. It's called Pittsburgh compound B or PID. If you took organic chemistry, it's going to pay off. Here's the molecular structure. But PID is really a small molecule that was based on a dye called thioflavin, 
that pathologists had been using for almost 100 years to stain and show plaques in brain tissue. And what is done with this molecule is that it is labeled with a tiny radioactive signal. It can be injected IV, it gets into the blood. If there are plaques in the brain, it sticks to the plaques and lights up on a special kind of brain scan called a positron emission tomography or PET scan. So here is an example of an amyloid PET scan in someone who doesn't have amyloid in their brain. You can see no red signal, just blue signal. But here in this person with Alzheimer's disease, you can see the plaques lighting up here to review your anatomy in the frontal cortex in particular. Now, about 10 years later, a team of radiochemists developed an uh, imaging tracer that could bind to tau tangles and light them up. And so here's an example now of a normal control showing no red signal, so no tangles in the brain. But here's someone with MCI. You can see some yellow early tangle deposition here in the temporal lobe of the brain, and then followed by more signal in these two patients who have Alzheimer's dementia. And so with the combination of scans that allow us to see plaques and tangles, we can really do what the pathologists have been doing for a long time, but in living people and see the evolution of the disease. And this has taught us a lot about how Alzheimer's disease evolves. And let me just demonstrate the evolution of the disease. And so on top here, you see amyloid PET scans on the bottom, tau PET scans. And this is a cognitively normal person. They have no amyloid in their brain. This red signal in the middle of the brain is not specific. But even in the absence of amyloid, you start to see some early tangles here in the medial part of the temporal lobe, the our part of the brain where the hippocampus is that's very important for memory. So sadly, all of us, beginning at about age 50, are starting to develop some tangles. This is almost as inevitable as death and taxes. Now, here is another cognitively normal person, but you can see that even though this person has no memory complaints and does totally performs in the normal range on the test that I showed you, their brain is actually full of amyloid plaques. And it's really in the presence of the plaques that the tangles are starting to escape from this part of the brain into the temporal and parietal cortex. And so this is a very important concept which is that the accumulation of amyloid and tau proteins begins 20 years before people have even the earliest stages of memory loss. Here's an individual with mild cognitive impairment. You can see the brain has already saturated with plaques, but you can see there are more tangles now escaping into other brain areas, more tangles here in this person with mild impairment than in this unimpaired individual. And then finally, here's someone who has dementia, and you can see the tangles have now spread also into the frontal cortex and parietal cortex. And so two important points here. One is that the plaques are kind of saturated. They reach a relative plateau very early in the course of the disease, but in the presence of plaques, the tangles spread. And then it's really the spread of tangles that is associated with cognitive impairments. So PET scans are great, but they involve radiation exposure and they're very expensive, on average, maybe five or $6,000. And so for a long time, there has been a focus on trying to develop blood tests that can reliably measure amyloid and tau, not in spinal fluid and not with advanced imaging, but in blood. And if you'd asked me five years ago if this would be possible, I would have been pretty skeptical. 
but there has been tremendous progress as covered in the lay press in developing these tests. And I'll show you just a little bit of data about that. This is a uh, study from Washington University in St. Louis measuring the ratio of the 42 to 40 amino acid amyloid beta fragments in the blood in individuals who had positive amyloid PET scans here in gray and individuals who had negative PET scans in white. And you can see that on average, the individuals that had positive scans had a lower ratio of A beta 42 to 40 than those that had negative scans. And you can kind of draw a line here and there is some overlap between the positives and the negatives, but the overall accuracy is about 88%, pretty darn good for a blood test. This is a test measuring the levels of phosphorylated tau in the blood. Now in individuals who are tau pet positive compared to those who are tau pet negative. And in the individuals that have a positive tau pet scan, the levels of this, pro this phospho tau protein in the blood is higher than those who have a negative tau scan. And this test is even more accurate, 92% compared to the PET scan. So these tests will be in the clinic very soon. And I think that is uh, incredibly important and exciting tool for clinicians to enable an early and accurate diagnosis. And so really with the evolution of these biomarkers or biological markers, the whole concept of Alzheimer's disease has changed completely. When I went to medical school, not that long ago, well, kind of long ago, about 20 years ago, uh, but I was still taught these initial criteria that were published in 1984 for diagnosing Alzheimer's disease. And they specifically said that the clinical criteria are the slow insidious onset and progressive impairment in memory and other cognitive functions. It's a clinical diagnosis. The diagnosis cannot be determined by laboratory tests. Those tests are really important primarily in identifying other causes of dementia, like medical causes, vitamin deficiencies, et cetera. Fast forward to 2018, and these are new criteria that were put out by the National Institute on Aging and the Alzheimer's Association, which totally take this concept and turn it upside down. In this research framework, the disease is defined entirely biologically by the presence of amyloid and tau, either found at autopsy or in living people with biomarkers. And the diagnosis is not based on the clinical symptoms of the disease. In fact, you can diagnose the presence of Alzheimer's in people who have no memory loss at all. And so this entirely shifts the paradigm to thinking about Alzheimer's disease from a clinical syndrome of dementia to a biological construct defined by plaques and tangles. And this turns out to be incredibly important in developing new drugs. So let me wrap up the talk by telling you a little bit about Alzheimer's therapies, current and future. The current therapies that we have to treat Alzheimer's disease have been around for 20, 25 years, and all of them are based on neurotransmitters. These chemicals that Dr. Wong discussed that transmit chemical signals between one neuron and another and tell the neuron whether to fire more or fire less. And the mainstay of treatment is a class of drugs called cholinesterase inhibitors that act on a specific neurotransmitter called acetylcholine. This is a neurotransmitter that is very important for memory and maintaining focus and attention. Here you see a neuron with a little vesicle full of acetylcholine and that is then released into this area of connection called the synapse, 
and it binds to a receptor on the next neuron. And in this uh, connecting area called the synaptic cleft, there is an enzyme called acetylcholinesterase. And that, the goal of that enzyme is to get rid of any excess acetylcholine that's just hanging around so you don't get too much. Now, in Alzheimer's disease, there is a loss of cells that produce this neurotransmitter. And so the drugs that we have to treat the disease inhibit this enzyme and prevent the destruction of acetylcholine. So there's more acetylcholine around because you're not destroying it as it's diffusing from one cell to another. And so these drugs are used to treat anywhere from mild to severe Alzheimer's dementia. There are three uh, drugs that are used around the world. These are their uh, generic names, uh, Dinepazil or Aristep, and there are two others, Rivastigmine Exelon, Galantamine Razodyne. These are the brand names. You see a lot of commercials, especially for Aricept. You might have heard of these drugs. These are our mainstay therapies. And then there is one other drug called Memantine, which acts on a different neurotransmitter called glutamate. And this is used only to treat moderate to severe dementia. So it's not useful in mild dementia. And so our typical plan is if we make a diagnosis of dementia due to Alzheimer's disease, we start one of these three cholinesterase inhibitors and as someone progresses to more moderate dementia, meaning they start to have trouble with some basic activities like hygiene, dressing, toileting, at that point, we add a second drug, we add memantine. That is the typical um, uh, standard of care that we practice and most other centers practice. This is a clinical trial of Dinepazil or Aricept in mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease. This drug was done double-blinded. Uh, with a placebo control. And what you see on this graph is change in a cognitive test called the mini mental state exam. And so people who were getting placebo, not surprisingly, were performing worse and worse on this task. In pink, you see people who got the drug and they had a little bump at 12 weeks. They, their memory was a little better. And then it actually started to get worse as well. But at the end of the trial, in this case, after one year, their performance on the test was significantly better than people who had received placebo. So these aren't cures by any stretch of the imagination. Most people don't feel that their memory is better when they're on these drugs. In fact, it doesn't stop their memory from getting worse, but what it does is it attenuates that process a little bit. And so I actually draw these curves when I start people on the drugs, not because I wanna be a Debbie Downer, but because I really want people to have a realistic expectation of what the drug can or can't do. And if people don't notice that their memory is better, and in fact, they notice that it's slipping over time, it doesn't mean the drug isn't doing what it's supposed to do, which is to slow that process down. Now, clearly we need to do better. And for many, many years, and we can talk about it in the Q&A, there has been a huge focus on the amyloid plaque specifically as the target for new therapies. And there are a lot of different parts of the biology that I showed you, all these little enzymes that clip the APP protein and make the A-beta, the aggregation of the A-beta, the formation of plaques, a lot of different ways of addressing the, the amyloid beta plaques. The treatment that I'll talk to you about today is an antibody therapy. We've heard a lot about COVID antibodies. This is amyloid beta antibodies that are infused into the blood through an IV, and they suck amyloid out of the brain. And the drug uh, that was recently approved called aducanumab is one of these antibodies. It's a human antibody. It binds to A-beta plaques. 
It was actually derived from human B cells, which are antibody producing cells that were collected from older adults who showed no or slow cognitive decline. And the, really the idea was that there must be something in the humors of these super agers, if you will, that was protecting them against Alzheimer's disease. And sure enough, some of them were making antibodies to the amyloid. And what the antibody does is it promotes the immune system cells then to gobble up the amyloid. And these graphs, I won't get into too much, but there are um, nice models of so-called Alzheimer's disease where we can engineer mice that express mutations that in humans cause the disease and they get plaques and memory loss. And what you see here is a quantification of the amount of amyloid in their brain if you give them placebo, but then if you give them increasing doses of the antibody, you can see they die with lower amounts of plaques in their brain. And so this led to human studies. And what you see here are amyloid PET scans. You are all now experts at reading amyloid PET scans. So these were done at baseline when people had received no antibody and then after placebo, really no change, but with increasing doses of antibody, you can see the plaques disappearing from the brain. The scan goes from being positive, full of amyloid to entirely negative. And this was very exciting. This was the first time, this was in 2016, that we were actually able to change the biology of the disease. In fact, this image that I'm showing you made the cover of Nature, which is one of the most prestigious scientific journals there are in medicine. And so this was super exciting, and it led to a large global program to try to see if these drugs slow memory decline. And so these are so-called phase three double-blinded studies where people are randomized to either get placebo or different doses of the antibody. And there were two trials that were done in parallel Overall, they recruited over 3,000 patients. The criteria were they had either MCI or mild dementia, and they had to have a positive PET scan to prove that they had amyloid in their brain. And then they were randomized to receive either placebo, low-dose, or high-dose antibody. And the primary outcome that we were looking at is something called the clinical dementia rating sum of boxes, which measures elements of cognition, like memory, orientation, judgment, and problem-solving as well as function. So how are people doing in their community affairs, home and hobbies, and personal care? And so these studies launched with a lot of fanfare. And a few years later, we got the disappointing news that both trials were actually terminated early because of a so-called futility analysis, an interim analysis that showed the drugs was very unlikely to hit its endpoint. And so this was hugely disappointing for sites like ours that were conducting these trials and for patients that felt like they might be benefiting from being in the trials. But sadly, we are kind of used to this in Alzheimer's disease. A lot of trials of drugs that show a lot of promise early on kind of fizzle out. So this was disappointing, but not unexpected. But now the story gets interesting because this was in March 2019, about seven months later, Biogen said, Biogen is the company, sorry, that is sponsoring the drug, said, hold on, wait a minute. We got more data coming in. We've done more analysis. And upon further review, we actually find that one of the trials was positive. It did slow memory decline. The other showed no effect, but we really want to believe the positive trial. And so we are filing to the FDA to ask them to approve our drug. And this was right around Halloween. So it led to a lot of funny memes about the zombie drug aducanumab that was literally rising from the dead. And so what did these studies show? 
Well, they did show that the drug, the antibody was removing plaques from the brain. These graphs show the two trials. One trial was called Emerge, one was called Engage. And here you see the amount of amyloid as measured by a PET scan that was present in people who were getting placebo in red, so a slight increase over 78 weeks, but then people who got low dose antibody had clearance of the PET signal and people who have got high dose antibody had even more loss of PET signal. So this was just replicating those single scans that I showed you earlier. And these effects were seen in both of the clinical trials. Now here is the clinical endpoint. This is the clinical dementia rating sum of boxes, this measure of cognition and function. And on this scale, going up means people are getting worse. And in one of the trials, here in placebo in gray, people getting placebo were a little, getting a little worse. People who got low-dose antibody were getting worse, but a little more slowly. And people who got the high-dose antibody were slowest of all. And in fact, there was a statistically significant signal, about 20% slowing of disease progression in the high-dose group compared to the placebo group. So this is the positive trial. However, the, the other trial showed really no effect. In fact, you can see the high dose and the placebo group really overlapping entirely, no statistically significant signal. Now, importantly, these antibodies can also cause significant side effects. These are called amyloid-related imaging abnormalities or ARIA. This is called ARIA-E, which is basically brain swelling. So on these MRI scans, White signal here represents swelling in parts of the brain where there was no swelling as a result of getting this treatment. REH stands for hemorrhage or microbleeds. These little dark dots represent tiny little bleeds that were found um, in people who were getting this drug. And in fact, this is a class effect. All the antibodies against amyloid beta um, can cause this side effect. It is more common in people who get high-dose drugs and in people who have the APOE4 genotype, the risk gene that I told you about. And in the aducanumab study, about 40% of the high-dose group had brain swelling or hemorrhage. Now, it sounds really scary, but actually 75% of the time, people had no symptoms at all. This was caught because they were doing surveillance MRIs for safety, and they were able to see edema or hemorrhage. About 25% of people had mild symptoms. The common one, symptoms were headache, confusion, dizzy or, dizziness, or nausea. 6% of people discontinued treatment because of these side effects. And serious symptoms were seen, uh, but relatively rarely. And so in November of 2020, just a few days after the presidential election, the FDA had an advisory committee to discuss whether they should approve aducanumab, and it was unanimous. The advisory committee said no. There is not enough data of safety or efficacy to, uh, to justify approving the drug. But seven months later, really in a surprise decision, the FDA declared that they had approved the drug for the treatment of MCI or mild dementia due to Alzheimer's disease under a pathway called accelerated approval, which is a pathway that is used for promising drugs in devastating diseases in which patients have really few other alternatives, like cancer, actually originally used to accelerate the approval of HIV treatments. And the accelerated approval is based on a biomarker. In this case, amyloid PET reduction, which the FDA considered reasonably likely to predict clinical benefits. 
And so there was a lot of drama after this happened. Three of the FDA advisors actually resigned. The original price of the drug was at $56,000 per year. Congress launched a number of investigations into the relationship between FDA and Biogen. So far, no results of those investigations uh, have been uh, publicized. A a number of high-profile hospital systems, including all the UC hospitals, did not approve adding the drug to their formulary. Other countries have not approved the drug so far. In December of last year, Biogen slashed the price to about half, $28,000 per year. And just this past January, Medicare published a draft decision that they would cover the drug only as part of clinical trials. So their final decision is pending in April. And so a lot of controversy and a lot of drama surrounding the approval of this drug. But there are other antibodies that are coming down the pipeline, and the data in those antibodies is clearer, and it does suggest that lowering amyloid plaques does lead to potentially a change in the biology of the disease and a clinical benefit. This is a different drug called denanumab, and here is uh, data showing that this antibody also to amyloid reduced amyloid levels compared to placebo. But very importantly, it also slowed the progression of tau pet. Here is tau pet increasing in the frontal cortex and placebo and spreading more slowly in the drug. And remember how I showed you that that spread of tau is what predicts increasing impairment. And sure enough, there was a benefit. This is a different scale. So here going down is getting worse. Placebo got worse and people who got the antibody got worse, but they got worse more slowly. And so there are new drugs in the pipeline that have clearer data. And importantly, with this particular antibody, the treatment was really only until the PET scan turned negative and then people switched to placebo. So it's hard to imagine treating people for years and years with an antibody that caused tens and thousands, tens of thousands of dollars. But if you imagine just treating people for a year, a year and a half until they clear the amyloid from their brain and then just watching them, that's something that is much more tenable from a public health perspective. So in the last few slides, I just wanna show you that there are a lot of drugs being developed. And fortunately, they're not all focused on amyloid, but there are also drugs focused on preventing the spread of tau and making sure that the synapses or connections in the brain are plastic, that there is adequate metabolism, thinking about vascular contributions and inflammation, Um, Also, neurotransmitter-based therapies, as well as lifestyle-based therapies. Um, The future really is not thinking only about treating people who have symptoms, but actually treating people before they have symptoms. When their brain is showing the biology of the disease, they're at risk for developing memory loss, but haven't yet. And there are a number of different clinical trials that are targeting individuals who have mutations that cause Alzheimer's or show evidence of amyloid plaques in the brain without symptoms with different types of therapies to see if we can not only treat people once they have memory loss, but if we can delay or even prevent memory loss from occurring. Some of the approaches are actually relatively low tech. This is a study out of Finland, and this is my last slide, which looked at a very intense multi-domain intervention of diet, exercise, cognitive training, vascular risk monitoring, in older people who were at risk for Alzheimer's disease. And actually even more than the antibodies and the fancy treatments, this intense lifestyle intervention was 
actually showed an effect in improving cognition compared to the control condition. And so there is a lot that we can do in terms of our lifestyle choices to moderate our risk of developing the disease, even if we are at risk. And so just to leave you with some take-home messages, Alzheimer's disease is an impending public health crisis. With an aging population, there really is a staggering disease burden ahead. There has been really exciting progress in the development of biomarkers that allow us to measure plaques and tangles in living people. And these have really transformed our understanding of the disease and even our definition of the disease. And these improved biomarkers are inevitably, in my opinion, going to lead to better therapies. We're doing smarter clinical trials. We're able to intervene at early, even at pre-symptomatic disease stages. And we are, I think, at the precipice of a paradigm shift from treating symptoms to detecting the disease before it causes symptoms and trying to postpone or delay those symptoms from ever occurring. And so I will end there and thank my many uh, collaborators at UCSF Neurology, Berkeley, and internationally, as well as funding sources, including the NIH Alzheimer's Association and other foundations. And thank you very much and happy to take any questions. Thanks so much, Dr. Rabinovich. That therapy slide was really mind-blowing and really exciting. Uh, one of the reasons I wanted to uh, present, uh, have a series on this topic was because, you know, in neurology, we've just seen an explosion of therapies from everything from MS to migraine to epilepsy and just the past, you know, five to 10 years. And it seems like Alzheimer's is the next to explode. So that's really exciting. Uh, some We've got some great questions. I, you mentioned that Alzheimer's is the sixth leading cause of death in the U.S. How does it exactly cause or contribute to death? Even though the disease initially hits the cortex and more the thinking part of the cortex and the basic parts of the cortex or other parts of the brain that control basic functions, eventually people do become disabled in the sense that they uh, are not able to walk or walking less. Um, and that creates a risk for falls, uh, fractures, blood clots. Uh, it can create a risk for infections. Um, people, uh, the, the parts of the brain that control swallowing become impaired. And so people might aspirate and develop pneumonia. And so very often, if people have Alzheimer's for long enough, they, they become disabled in that way. And then they develop all of the um, complications of being um, sedentary, uh, not being able to walk, and they often die of infection, blood clots, um, falls, and, and the complications of falls. But it can be a very long course. This has been called the long goodbye because the average time from diagnosis of dementia to death is on average eight years. And some people it's shorter and some people it actually can last even longer. And so people can be very preserved in their basic functions. They're able to eat and drink and walk, but they can be very, very impaired in terms of their cognition and uh, unable to even talk. And then the you listed two kind of genetic uh, patterns of inheritance, familial and sporadic. Do we know any more about the patterns of that? Can it skip generations or? Yeah, so the familial forms 
that 1% that is caused by a single mutation in a single gene that makes these plaques form early on is what is transmitted um, in what's called autosomal dominant fashion. So you have two copies, say, of the gene, presinone one, one from your mother and one from your father. So one will have the mutation, one doesn't. And if you have that mutation, you're 100% basically going to develop symptoms unless you die young of something else. And then there's a 50-50 chance that you will transmit that mutation to any of your progeny. And so um, that is rare, but there are families that have been dealing with Alzheimer's like that for many generations. Um, And then more common is the sporadic form. And I mentioned just one gene, the APOE gene, but it turns out that there are probably 30 or 40 genes that have already been identified reproducibly that can moderate the risk of Alzheimer's, but they have very, very small effects. As opposed to APOE, where if you have one copy of E4, you're three times more likely to develop the disease. If you have two copies, you're 10 to 15 times more likely. These other genes will affect your risk by like 5% or 10%, not 300%. And so they have small effects. But I think that one uh, course in the future is actually to determine what someone's risk is by sequencing all these genes and coming up with what we call a polygenic risk score, basically integrating all the different mutations that they might have, or it's not really mutations, but more variants. And then that might tell us what that person's genetic risk is. And then if we're doing blood tests, for example, to see if people have an amyloid or tau, we might start screening those individuals with blood tests at age 50 or 45 as opposed to age 60 or 65, really very similar to what we do with cancer or heart disease. And especially in cancer, we think about genetic risk and family history, and that really uh, dictates how early we start screening people with mammograms or colonoscopies or other uh, screening measures for cancer. I think we're on the path to doing that with Alzheimer's disease. There's a lot of interest in the biomarkers, like the blood tests. And I'm interested in this too. Do you know when exactly they'll be available? And do you think they'll be available, like you said, more standard for patients who are a certain age or more for people who are more showing symptoms? I think the first use will be in specialty centers and in symptomatic people. But I can envision a future that is not far away where we, especially if we have treatments that can prevent these proteins from causing damage to the brain where we start to actually think about screening people who are asymptomatic. Um, There is a blood test now that is available clinically. There's one, and it's a a, a test for amyloid beta. It's not covered by insurance. Costs around $1,200 out of pocket. Um, But that's the one test that's in the clinic. But I think there will be more uh, tests to follow. And there's still some issues with the tests. So the blood tests perform very well under sort of pristine research conditions when you can immediately take the blood sample and spin it really fast with a centrifuge and immediately freeze it at negative 80 degrees Celsius and then ship it on dry ice to a lab. That is not something that is routine, even in commercial labs. And so there are still some hurdles to overcome in terms of making this more scalable The other thing about the blood tests, and this is really true of a lot of the biomarker research, is that there has been a real lack of diversity. 
in the studies that have looked at developing these tests and validating them. And I told you that uh, Black and Latinx Americans are at higher risk for developing dementia, but there has been very poor inclusion of those individuals from those racial and ethnic backgrounds in studies. And that is a real um, shortcoming of the field and of clinical trials is the lack of inclusion, the lack of diversity, and the field is really coming to a reckoning around that because the people who are at highest risk for developing the disease, the disease have not been included in the clinical trials and biomarker development. And so that is something that many centers are working very hard on and NIH is very focused on to correct that wrong. And can you explain a little bit more about why we might be able to detect tau or other markers in the blood of asymptomatic patients, doesn't that suggest maybe it's not uh, reflecting the pathology of disease if people don't have symptoms yet, but we're able to see these biomarkers? Well, it's reflecting the pathology in the sense that you can show that elevations of these blood levels are associated with tangles detected on PET scans. And because a lot of studies have banked blood, there are actually a number of studies that looked at blood that was taken during life in people that had passed on and had confirmation of plaques and tangles at autopsy, showing that these blood tests that were done years and years earlier were very accurate in predicting who had pathology in their brain. But not everyone who has plaques and tangles is going to develop symptoms of Alzheimer's. And that is where there is some controversy. So they have the biological changes of the disease, but they may be many years away from developing symptoms. And so if, for example, someone at age 85 has a positive amyloid PET scan, it turns out that about 40% of people at age 85 have amyloid in their brain. And many of them will never develop symptoms of Alzheimer's. And so we really should be thinking about um, these plaques and tangles, almost like we think about risk factors for stroke or heart attack. So we know that high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, et cetera, are risk factors for having a stroke or a heart attack. Plaques and tangles are risk factors for developing dementia. But even though not everyone with diabetes is going to get a stroke, we treat diabetes because we want to prevent stroke. And similarly, we might treat the plaques and tangles because we want to prevent people from developing dementia. Are there other neurologic diseases that exhibit amyloid plaques? Yes. Or um, tau tangles? So uh, amyloid plaques can be present in blood vessels in a condition called cerebral amyloid angiopathy. And that makes the blood vessels prone to leak and people can have brain bleeds. And this uh, amyloid angiopathy will also be detected on a PET scan. And it sometimes is associated with plaques in the brain, and sometimes it's just plaques in blood vessels. There's another disease called Lewy body dementia, which is a Parkinson's type of dementia. People develop the symptoms of Parkinson's, so tremor and slowing and rigidity, as well as cognitive changes. And people with that disease have plaques as well. So there is some overlap. The tau is very central to a lot of different brain disorders. It's present in Alzheimer's. It's present in a disease called chronic traumatic encephalopathy or CTE, which is a disease 
of repetitive head trauma. We hear a lot about it in the news in former NFL football players or boxers or military veterans who have been exposed to repetitive brain impacts. Tau is important in math disorder. It's important in other um, Parkinson's type disorders um, called PSP and CBD. I won't get into all of them, but there are many, many disorders that involve the tau protein. It seems very central to um, brain degeneration and it comes in different flavors. The tau of Alzheimer's is different from the tau of head trauma, which is different than the tau that we get in some Parkinson's sy syndromes. And so um, there is also a difference in the biology of tau and how it interacts with the brain to cause tissue loss and different neurologic syndromes. A few more questions here. Are, what are some of the other common nutrient deficiencies that can cause memory issues aside from B12? The main one that we look at is B12. B12 is very important for brain health and neurologic health. There are some studies that suggest that vitamin D deficiency might be associated with cognitive impairment as well as with some other neurologic conditions. I think that's a little bit controversial. But those are the main, and, and folate deficiency rarely can do this. There's a syndrome um, that was classically described in people who were very severe alcoholics of thiamine or vitamin B1 deficiency. It doesn't look like Alzheimer's, but it can present with very severe memory loss because of destruction of key brain structures as a result of vitamin B1 deficiency. And people can actually develop thiamine deficiency, not related to alcoholism, but after gastric surgery, stomach surgery, uh, with some eating disorders, even during pregnancy, if there's a lot of nausea and vomiting. And so um, we've seen occasionally memory loss, more acutely memory loss related to vitamin B1 deficiency, but it's relatively rare. And thiamine is available now in most foods that we, that we can buy at the supermarket. Okay. And I think this is a bit of a tough question. At what point uh, should symptoms not be ignored as typical aging? Like is, is there a clear distinction or for you, what really makes that difference of wanting to do more tests in someone? Yeah, no, it's a really important question. So here are the things that are very common in people who are aging normally. Tip of the tongue, trying to remember the right word or the name of a person, very common, not super concerning. Um, walking into a room and kind of losing focus because you're distracted by something else and forgetting what, why you walked into the room, very common. Um, just having a little bit more trouble processing a lot of information quickly. I think the most common cause now is that everyone's lives is, are so busy that people have so many balls in the air and so many things to track cognitively that you kind of, your brain gets overwhelmed, even if it's healthy. The things that worry me are um, when people are starting, for example, to repeat themselves, when they forget events, like the uh, sergeant that I told you about, we had a whole conversation about coming to memory clinic at night and in the morning had no memory of that. That is very concerning. Um, but as we said, these brain disorders can present with other symptoms. And so the number one thing that worries me is if the patient is worried. If someone is worried and they want, I would recommend, you know, get an evaluation, get it checked out. You know, most likely you'll have good news that there's nothing concerning going on. 
But if there is something concerning, you want to know early so you can address and see what the treatment options are. And studies do suggest that early on, people are themselves more aware of their own memory loss than others might be. And then over time, and some people might forget that they're forgetting. And it's very common in people who have full-blown Alzheimer's that they actually don't even notice there's a problem. They forget that they're forgetting. If they ask you the same question two minutes later, they don't remember that. And so when you tell them that they're forgetful, they're like, what are you talking about? I don't, I never, I never asked you that question two minutes ago. And so um, that can also be very challenging for patients and families to navigate when it's obvious to everyone that there's a problem except to the patient. And that can be very touchy, as you can imagine. Great. Well, thank you so much again for speaking with us. And uh, this is fantastic. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.